Chapter Eleven of *The Man in the Iron Mask* by Alexander Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In which the author thinks it is high time to return to the Vicomte de Bragelonne. Our readers will have observed in this story the adventures of the new and of the past generation being detailed, as it were, side by side. You will have noticed in the former the reflection of the glory of earlier years, the experience of the bitter things of this world. In the former also, that peace which takes possession of the heart, and that healing of the scars which were formerly deep and painful wounds. In the latter, the conflicts of love and vanity, bitter disappointments, ineffable delights, life instead of memory. If, therefore, any variety has been presented to the reader in the different episodes of this tale, it is to be attributed to the numerous shades of color which are presented on this double tablet, where two pictures are seen side by side, mingling and harmonizing their severe and pleasing tones. The repose of the emotions of one is found in harmonious contrast with the fiery sentiments of the other. After having talked reason with older heads, one loves to talk nonsense with youth. Therefore, if the threads of the story do not seem very intimately to connect the chapter we are now writing with the one we have just written, we do not intend to give ourselves any more thought or trouble about it than Roysdale took in painting an autumn sky after having finished a springtime scene. We accordingly resume Raoul de Bragelonne's story at the very place where our last sketch left him. In a state of frenzy and dismay, or rather, without power or will of his own, hardly knowing what he was doing, he fled swiftly after the scene in La Valliere's chamber, that strange exclusion, Louise's grief, Montalais's terror, the king's wrath, all seemed to indicate some misfortune. But what? He had arrived from London because he had been told of the existence of a danger, and almost on his arrival this appearance of danger was manifest. Was not this sufficient for a lover? Certainly it was, but it was insufficient for a pure and upright heart such as his, and yet Raoul did not seek for explanations in the very quarter where more jealous or less timid lovers would have done. He did not go straight away to his mistress and say, "'Louise, is it true that you love me no longer? Is it true that you love another?' Full of courage, full of friendship, as he was full of love, a religious observer of his word, and believing blindly the word of others, Raoul said within himself, Guiche wrote to put me on my guard. Guiche knows something. I will go and ask Guiche what he knows and tell him what I have seen. The journey was not a long one. Guiche, who had been brought from Fontainebleau to Paris within the last two days, was beginning to recover from his wounds and to walk about a little in his room. He uttered a cry of joy as he saw Raoul, with the eagerness of friendship, enter the apartment. Raoul was unable to refrain from a cry of grief when he saw de Guiche so pale, so thin, so melancholy. A very few words and a simple gesture which de Guiche made to have put aside Raoul's arm were sufficient to inform the latter of the truth. "'Ah, so it is,' said Raoul, seating himself beside his friend. "'One loves and dies.' "'No, no, not dies.' replied guiche smiling since i am now recovering and since too i can press you in my arms ah, i understand 
and I understand you too. You fancy I am unhappy, Raoul? Alas! No, I am the happiest of men. My body suffers, but not my mind or my heart. If you only knew, oh, I am indeed the very happiest of men. So much the better, said Raoul. So much the better, provided it lasts. It is over. I have had enough happiness to last me to my dying day, Raoul. I have no doubt you have had, but she... Listen, I love her, because... But you are not listening to me. I beg your pardon. Your mind is preoccupied. Yes, your health in the first place. It is not that, I know. My dear friend, you would be wrong. I think to ask me any questions, you, of all persons in the world. And he laid so much weight upon the you that he completely enlightened his friend upon the nature of the evil and the difficulty of remedying it. You say that, Raoul, on account of what I wrote you. Certainly. We will talk over that matter a little when you have finished telling me of all your own pleasures and your pains. My dear friend, I am entirely at your service. Thank you. I have hurried. I have flown here. I came in half the time the government couriers usually take. Now tell me, my dear friend, what did you want? Nothing whatever but to make you come. Well, then, I am here. All is quite right, then. There must have been something else, I suppose. No, indeed. De Guiche! Upon my honor! You cannot possibly have crushed all my hopes so violently, or have exposed me to being disgraced by the king for my return, which is in disobedience of his orders. You cannot, I say, have planted jealousy in my heart, merely to say to me it is all right to be perfectly easy. I do not say to you, Raoul, be perfectly easy, but pray understand me. I never will, nor can I, indeed, tell you anything else. What sort of person do you take me for? What do you mean? If you know anything, why conceal it from me? If you do not know anything, why did you write so warningly? True, true. I was very wrong, and I regret having doing so, Raoul. It seems nothing to write to a friend and say, Come, but to have this friend face to face, to feel him tremble, and breathlessly and anxiously wait to hear what one hardly dare tell him, is very difficult. Dare? I have courage enough, if you have not, exclaimed Raoul in despair. See how unjust you are, and how soon you forget you have to do with a poor wounded fellow such as your unhappy friend is. So calm yourself, Raoul. I said to you, come. You are here. So ask me nothing further. Your object in telling me to come was your hope that I should see with my own eyes, was it not? Nay, do not hesitate, for I have seen all. Oh, exclaimed Guiche, or at least I thought. 
there now you see you are not sure but if you have any doubt my poor friend what remains for me to do i saw louise much agitated montalais in a state of bewilderment the king the king yes you turn your head aside the danger is there the evil is there tell me is it not so is it not the king i say nothing oh you say a thousand times more than nothing give me facts for pity's sake give me proofs my friend the only friend i have speak tell me all my heart is crushed wounded to death i am dying from despair if that really be so as i see it is indeed dear raoul replied de guiche you relieve me from my difficulty and i will tell you all perfectly sure that i can tell you nothing but what is consoling compared to the despair from which i see you suffering go on go on i am listening well then i can only tell you what you might learn from every one you meet from every one do you say it is talked about then before you say people talk about it learn what it is that people have to talk about i assure you solemnly that people only talk about what may in truth be very innocent perhaps a walk huh. a walk with the king yes certainly a walk with the king and i believe the king has already very frequently before taken walks with ladies without on that account you would not have written to me shall i say again if there had been nothing unusual in this promenade i know that while the storm lasted it would have been far better if the king had taken shelter somewhere else than to have remained with his head uncovered before la valliere but the king is so very courteous and polite oh de guiche de guiche you are killing me do not let us talk any more then nay let us continue this walk was followed by others i suppose no i mean yes there was the adventure of the oak i think but i know nothing about the matter at all raoul rose de guiche endeavored to imitate him notwithstanding his weakness well i will not add another word i have said either too much or not enough let others give you further information if they will or if they can my duty was to warn you and that i have done watch over your own affairs now yourself question others alas you are no true friend to speak to me in that manner said the young man in utter distress the first man i meet may be either evilly disposed or a fool if the former he will tell me a, a lie to make me suffer more than i do now if the latter he will do worse still ha, de guiche de guiche before two hours are over i shall have been told ten falsehoods and shall have as many duels on my hands save me then is it not best to know the worst always but i know nothing 
I tell you, I was wounded, attacked by fever, out of my senses, and I have only a very faint recollection of it all, but there is no reason why we should search very far. When the very man we want is close at hand, is not D'Artagnan your friend? Oh, true, true. Get to him, then. He will be able to throw sufficient light upon the subject. At this moment a lackey entered the room. What is it? said de Guiche. Someone is waiting for Monseigneur in the cabinet de porcelaine. Very well. Will you excuse me, my dear Raoul? I am so proud since I have been able to walk again. I would offer you my arm, de Guiche, if I did not guess that the person in question is a lady. I believe so, said de Guiche, smiling as he quitted Raoul. Raoul remained motionless, absorbed in grief, overwhelmed, like the miner upon whom a vault has just fallen in, who, wounded his life-blood welling fast, his thoughts confused, endeavors to recover himself, to save his life and to retain his reason. A few minutes were all Raoul needed to dissipate the bewildering sensations occasioned by these two revelations. He had already recovered the thread of his ideas when, suddenly, through the door he fancied he recognized Montalais's voice in the cabinet de porcelain. "'She!' he cried. "'Yes, it is indeed her voice. She will be able to tell me the whole truth. But shall I question her here? She conceals herself even from me. She is coming, no doubt, from Madame. I will see her in her own apartment. She will explain her alarm, her flight, the strange manner in which I was driven out. She will tell me all that. After Monsieur d'Artagnan, who knows everything, shall have given me a fresh strength and courage. Madame, a coquette I fear, and yet a coquette who is herself in love has her moments of kindness, a coquette who is as capricious and uncertain as life or death, but who tells de Guiche that he is the happiest of men. He at least is lying on roses. And so he hastily quitted the comte's apartments, reproaching himself as he went for having talked of nothing but his own affairs to de Guiche, and soon reached D'Artagnan's quarters. End of chapter 11 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter Twelve of the Man in the Iron Mask by Alexander Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bragelonne continues his inquiries. The captain, sitting buried in his leathern armchair, his spurs fixed in the floor, his sword between his legs, was reading a number of letters as he twisted his mustache. D'Artagnan uttered a welcome full of pleasure when he perceived his friend's son. "'Raoul, my boy,' he said, "'by what lucky accident does it happen that the king has recalled you?' These words did not sound agreeably in the young man's ears, who, as he seated himself, replied, "'Upon my word I cannot tell you. All that I know is I have come back.' Hm," said D'Artagnan, folding up his letters and directing a look full of meaning on him. "'What do you say, my boy, that the king has not recalled you and you have returned? I do not understand that at all.' 
Raoul was already pale enough, and he now began to turn his hat round and round in his hand. "'What the deuce is the matter that you look as you do? And what makes you so dumb?' said the captain. "'Do people nowadays assume that sort of airs in England? I have been in England and came here again as lively as a chaffinch. Will you not say something?' "'I have too much to say.' "'Ah!' How is your father? Forgive me, my dear friend. I was going to ask you that. D'Artagnan increased the sharpness of his penetrating gaze, which no secret was capable of resisting. You are unhappy about something, he said. I am indeed, and you know the reason very well, Monsieur D'Artagnan. I? Of course. "'Nay, do not pretend to be astonished.' "'I am not pretending to be astonished, my friend.' "'Dear Captain, I know very well that in all trials of finesse, as well as in all trials of strength, I shall be beaten by you. You can see that at the present moment I am an idiot, an absolute noodle. I have neither head nor arm. Do not despise, but help me. In two words.' I am the most wretched of living beings. Oh, why is that? inquired D'Artagnan, unbuckling his belt and thawing the asperity of his smile. Because Mademoiselle de la Valliere is deceiving me. She is deceiving you, said D'Artagnan, not a muscle of whose face had moved. Those are big words. Who makes use of them? everyone ha if everyone says so there must be some truth in it i begin to believe there is fire when i see smoke it is ridiculous perhaps but it is so therefore you do believe me exclaimed bragelonne quickly i never mix myself up in affairs of that kind you know that very well what not for a friend for a son exactly if you were a stranger i should tell you i will tell you nothing at all how is porthos do you know monsieur cried raoul pressing d'artagnan's hand i entreat you in the name of the friendship you vowed my father the deuce take it you are really ill from curiosity no it is not from curiosity it is from love good another big word if you were really in love my dear raoul you would be very different what do you mean i mean that if you were really so deeply in love that i could believe i was addressing myself to your heart but it is impossible i tell you i love louise to distraction D'Artagnan could read to the very bottom of the young man's heart. "'Impossible, I tell you,' he said. "'You are like all young men. You are not in love. You are out of your senses.' "'Well, suppose it were only that?' "'No sensible man ever succeeded in making much of a brain when the head was turned. I have completely lost my senses in the same way a hundred times in my life.' You would listen to me, but you would not hear me. 
You would hear, but you would not understand me. You would understand, but you would not obey me. Oh, try, try. I go far. Even if I were unfortunate enough to know something and foolish enough to communicate it to you, you are my friend, you say? Indeed, yes. Very good. I should quarrel with you. You would never forgive me for having destroyed your illusion, as people say in love affairs. Monsieur d'Artagnan, you know all, and yet you plunge me in perplexity and despair, in death itself. There, there, now. I never complain, as you know, but as heaven and my father would never forgive me for blowing out my brains, I will go and get the first person I meet to give me the information which you withhold. I will tell him he lies, and— And you would kill him. And a fine affair that would be. So much the better. Why should I care? Kill anyone you please, my boy, if it gives you any pleasure. It is exactly like a man with a toothache who keeps on saying, Oh, what torture I am suffering. I could bite a piece of iron in half. My answer always is, bite, my friend, bite. The tooth will remain all the same. "'I shall not kill anyone, monsieur,' said Raoul gloomily. "'Yes. You now assume a different tone. "'Instead of killing, you will get killed yourself, I suppose you mean. "'Very fine indeed. How much I should regret you. "'Of course, I should go about all day saying, "'Ah, what a fine, stupid fellow that Bragelonne was. "'As great a stupid as I ever met with.' I have passed my whole life almost in teaching him how to hold and use his sword properly, and the silly fellow has got himself spitted like a lark. Go then, Raoul. Go and get yourself disposed of, if you like. I hardly know who can have taught you logic. But deuce take me if your father has not been regularly robbed of his money. Raoul buried his face in his hands, murmuring, No, no, I have not a single friend in the world. Oh, bah, said D'Artagnan. I meet with nothing but raillery or indifference. I don't fancies, monsieur. I do not laugh at you, although I am a Gascon. And as for being indifferent, if I were so, I should have sent you about your business a quarter of an hour ago, for you would make a man who was out of his senses with delight as dull as possible, and would be the death of one who was out of spirits. How now, young man? Do you wish me to disgust you with the girl you are attached to, and to teach you to execrate the whole sex who constitute the honor and happiness of human life? Oh, tell me, monsieur, and I will bless you. Do you think, my dear fellow, that I can have crammed into my brain all about the carpenter and the painter and the staircase and a hundred other similar tales of the kind? A carpenter? Uh, what do you mean? Upon my word, I don't know. Someone told me there was a carpenter who made an opening through a certain flooring. In La Valliere's room? Oh, I don't know where. In the king's apartment, perhaps? Of course. If it were in the king's apartment, I should tell you, I suppose. In whose room, then? I have told you for the last hour that I know nothing of the whole affair. But the painter, then, the portrait. 
it seems that the king wished to have the portrait of one of the ladies belonging to the court la valliere why you seem to have only that name in your mouth who spoke to you of la valliere if it be not her portrait then why do you suppose it would concern me i do not suppose it will concern you but you ask me all sorts of questions and i answer you you positively will learn all the scandal of the affair and i tell you make the best you can of it raoul struck his forehead with his hand in utter despair it will kill me he said so you have said already yes you are right and he made a step or two as if he were going to leave where are you going to look for someone who will tell me the truth who is that a woman mademoiselle de la valliere herself i suppose you mean said d'artagnan with a smile ha a famous idea that you wish to be consoled by someone and you will be so at once she will tell you nothing ill of herself of course so be off you are mistaken monsieur replied raoul the woman i mean will tell me all the evil she possibly can you allude to montalais i suppose her friend a woman who on that account will exaggerate all that is either bad or good in the matter mm, do not talk to montalais my good fellow you have some reasons for wishing me not to talk with montalais well i admit it and in point of fact why should i play with you as a cat does with a poor mouse you distress me you do indeed and if i wish you not to speak to montalais just now it is because you will be betraying your secret and people will take advantage of it wait if you can i cannot so much the worse why you see raoul if i had an idea but i have not got one promise me that you will pity me my friend that is all i need and leave me to get out of the affair by myself huh, yes indeed in order that you may get deeper into the mire a capital idea truly go and sit down at that table and take a pen in your hand what for to write and ask montalais to give you an interview ha huh, said raoul snatching eagerly at the pen which the captain held out to him suddenly the door opened and one of the musketeers approaching d'artagnan said captain mademoiselle de montalais is here and wishes to speak to you to me murmured d'artagnan ask her to come in i shall soon see he said to himself whether she wishes to speak to me or not the cunning captain was quite right in his suspicions for as soon as montalais entered she exclaimed oh monsieur monsieur i beg your pardon monsieur d'artagnan oh i forgive you mademoiselle said d'artagnan i know that at my age those who are looking for me generally need me for something or another i was looking for monsieur de bragelonne replied montalais how very fortunate that is he was looking for you too raoul will you accompany mademoiselle de montalais oh certainly go along then 
he said as he gently pushed Raoul out of the cabinet, and then, taking hold of Montalais's hand, he said in a low voice, "'Be kind toward him, spare him, and spare her too if you can.' "'Ah!' she said in the same tone of voice, "'it is not I who am going to speak to him.' "'Who then?' It is Madame who has sent for him. Very good, cried D'Artagnan. It is Madame, is it? In an hour's time, then, the poor fellow will be cured. Or else dead, said Montalais in a voice full of compassion. Adieu, Monsieur D'Artagnan, she said, and she ran to join Raoul, who was waiting for her a little distance from the door, very much puzzled and thoroughly uneasy at the dialogue which promised no good augury for him. End of chapter 12, recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 13 of The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexander Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Jealousies Lovers are tender toward everything that forms part of the daily life of the object of their affection. Raoul no sooner found himself alone with Montalais than he kissed her hand with rapture. "'There, there,' said the young girl sadly. "'You are throwing your kisses away. I will guarantee that they will not bring you back any interest.' "'How so? Why? Will you explain to me, my dear Aura?' madame will explain everything to you i am going to take you to her apartments what silence and throw away your dark and savage looks the windows here have eyes the walls have ears have the kindness not to look at me any longer be good enough to speak to me aloud of the rain of the fine weather and of the charms of england at all events interrupted raoul I tell you, I warn you, that wherever people may be, I know not how, madame is sure to have eyes and ears open. I am not very desirous, you can easily believe, of being dismissed or thrown into the Bastille. Let us talk, I tell you, or rather, do not let us talk at all. Raoul clenched his hands and tried to assume the look and gait of a man of courage. It is true but of a man of courage on his way to the torture-chamber. Montalais, glancing in every direction, walking along with an easy swinging gait and holding up her head pertly in the air, preceded him to Madame's apartments, where he was at once introduced. Well, he thought, this day will pass away without my learning anything. Guiche showed too much consideration for my feelings. He had no doubt come to an understanding with Madame and both of them, by a friendly plot, agreed to postpone the solution of the problem. Why have I not a determined, inveterate enemy? That serpent de Ward, for instance, that he would bite, it is very likely, but I should not hesitate any more. To hesitate, to doubt, better far to die. The next moment Raoul was in Madame's presence. Henrietta, more charming than ever, was half lying, half reclining in her armchair, her small feet upon an embroidered velvet cushion. She was playing with a kitten with long, silky fur which was biting her fingers and hanging by the lace of her collar. Madame seemed plunged in deep thought, so deep indeed, that it required both Montalais and Raoul's voice to disturb her from her reverie. "'Your Highness sent for me,' 
repeated Raoul. Madame shook her head as if she were just awakening, and then said, "'Good morning, Monsieur de Bragelonne. Yes, I sent for you. So you have returned from England?' "'Yes, madame, and am at your royal highness's commands.' "'Thank you. Leave us, Montalais.' And the latter immediately left the room. "'You have a few minutes to give, Monsieur de Bragelonne, have you not?' my life is at your royal highness's disposal raoul returned with respect guessing that there was something serious in these unusual courtesies nor was he displeased indeed to observe the seriousness of her manner feeling persuaded that there was some sort of affinity between madame's sentiments and his own in fact everyone at court of any perception at all knew perfectly well the capricious fancy and absurd despotism of the princess's singular character madame had been flattered beyond all bounds by the king's attention she had made herself talked about she had inspired the queen with that mortal jealousy which is the stinging scorpion at the heel of every woman's happiness madame in a word in her attempts to cure a wounded pride found that her heart had become deeply and passionately attached we know what madame had done to recall raoul who had been sent out of the way by louis the fourteenth Raoul did not know of her letter to Charles II, although D'Artagnan had guessed its contents. Who will undertake to account for that seemingly inexplicable mixture of love and vanity, that passionate tenderness of feeling, that prodigious duplicity of conduct? No one can, indeed, not even the bad angel who kindles the love of coquetry in the heart of a woman. "'Monsieur de Bragelonne,' said the princess, after a moment's pause, "'have you returned—' satisfied bragelonne looked at madame henrietta and seeing how pale she was not alone from what she was keeping back but also from what she was burning to say said satisfied what is there for me to be satisfied or dissatisfied about madame but what are those things with which a man of your age and of your appearance is usually either satisfied or dissatisfied how eager she is thought raoul almost terrified what venom is it she is going to distill into my heart and then frightened at what she might possibly be going to tell him and wishing to put off the opportunity of having everything explained which he had hitherto so ardently wished for yet had dreaded for so much he replied i left madame a dear friend in good health and on my return i find him very ill you refer to monsieur de guiche replied madame henrietta with imperturbable self-possession i have heard he is a very dear friend of yours he is indeed madame well it is quite true he has been wounded but he is better now oh monsieur de guiche is not to be pitied she said hurriedly and then recovering herself added but has he anything to complain of has he complained of anything is there any cause of grief or sorrow that we are not acquainted with i allude only to his wound madame so much the better then for in other respects monsieur de guiche seems to be very happy he is always in very high spirits i am sure that you monsieur de bragelonne would far prefer to be like him wounded only in the body for what indeed is such a wound after all 
Raoul started. Alas, he said to himself, she is returning to it. What did you say? she inquired. I did not say anything, madame. You did not say anything? You disapprove of my observation, then? You are perfectly satisfied, I suppose? Raoul approached closer to her. Madame, he said, your royal highness wishes to say something to me, and your instinctive kindness and generosity of disposition induce you to be careful and considerate as to your manner of conveying it. Will your royal highness throw this kind forbearance aside? I am able to bear everything, and I am listening. Ah, oh, replied Henrietta, what do you understand, then? that which your royal highness wishes me to understand said raoul trembling notwithstanding his command over himself as he pronounced these words in point of fact murmured the princess it seems cruel but since i have begun yes madame once your highness has deigned to begin will you condescend to finish Henrietta rose hurriedly and walked a few paces up and down her room. "'What did Monsieur de Guiche tell you?' she said suddenly. "'Nothing, madame.' "'Nothing? Did he say nothing? Ah, how well I recognize him in that!' "'No doubt he wished to spare me.' "'And that is what friends call friendship. But surely Monsieur d'Artagnan, whom you have just left, must have told you.' no more than de guiche madame henrietta made a gesture full of impatience as she said at least you know all the court knows i know nothing at all madame not the scene in the storm no madame not the tete-a-tete in the forest no madame nor the flight to chaillot Raoul, whose head dropped like a blossom cut down by the reaper, made an almost superhuman effort to smile as he replied with the greatest gentleness. "'I have had the honor of telling your royal highness that I am absolutely ignorant of everything, that I am a poor, unremembered outcast who has this moment arrived from England. There have rolled so many stormy waves between myself and those I left behind here.' that the rumor of none of the circumstances your highness refers to has been able to reach me. Henrietta was affected by his extreme pallor, his gentleness, and his great courage. The principal feeling in her heart at that moment was an eager desire to hear the nature of the remembrance which the poor lover retained of the woman who had made him suffer so much. "'Monsieur de Bragelonne,' she said, "'that which your friends have refused to do—' i will do for you whom i like and esteem very much i will be your friend on this occasion you hold your head high as a man of honour should and i deeply regret that you may have to bow before ridicule and in a few days it might be contempt ha <laughs> exclaimed raoul perfectly livid it is as bad as that then if you do not know said the princess i see that you guess you were affianced i believe to mademoiselle de la valliere 
yes madame by that right you deserve to be warned about her as some day or another i shall be obliged to dismiss mademoiselle de la valliere from my service dismiss la valliere cried bragelonne of course do you suppose i shall always be amenable to the tears and protestations of the king no no my house shall no longer be made a convenience for such practices but you tremble you cannot stand no madame no said bragelonne making an effort over himself i thought i should have died just now that was all your royal highness did me the honor to say that the king wept and implored you yes but in vain returned the princess who then related to raoul the scene that took place at chaillot and the king's despair on his return she told him of his indulgence to herself and the terrible word with which the outraged princess the humiliated coquette had quashed the royal anger raoul stood with his head bent down what do you think of it all she said the king loves her he replied but you seem to think she does not love him alas madame i was thinking of the time when she loved me henrietta was for a moment struck with admiration at this sublime disbelief and then shrugging her shoulders she said you do not believe me i see how deeply you must love her and you doubt if she loves the king i do until i have a proof of it forgive me madame but she has given me her word and her mind and heart are too upright to tell a falsehood you require proof be it so come with me then end of chapter thirteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter fourteen of the man in the iron mask by alexander dumas translated by william robson this librivox recording is in the public domain a domiciliary visit the princess preceding raoul led him through the courtyard toward that part of the building la valliere inhabited and ascending the same staircase which raoul himself had ascended that very morning she paused at the door of the room in which the young man had been so strangely received by montalais the opportunity was remarkably well chosen to carry out the project madame henrietta had conceived for the chateau was empty the king the courtiers and the ladies of the court had set off for st germain madame henrietta was the only one who knew of bragelonne's return and thinking over the advantages which might be drawn from this return she had feigned indisposition in order to remain behind madame was therefore confident of finding la valliere's room and st aignan's apartment perfectly empty she took a pass-key from her pocket and opened the door of her maid-of-honor's apartment bragelonne's gaze was immediately fixed upon the interior of the room which he recognized at once and the impression which the sight of it produced upon him was torture the princess looked at him and her practised eye at once detected what was passing in the young man's heart you asked for proofs she said do not be astonished then if i give you them but 
if you do not think that you have courage enough to confront them there is still time to withdraw i thank you madame said bragelonne but i came here to be convinced you promised to convince me do so enter then said madame and shut the door behind you bragelonne obeyed and then turned toward the princess whom he interrogated by a look you know where you are i suppose inquired madame henrietta everything leads me to believe i am in mademoiselle de la valliere's room you are but i would observe to your highness that this room is a room and is not a proof wait said the princess as she walked to the foot of the bed folded up the screen into its several compartments and stooped down toward the floor look here she continued stoop down and lift up this trap-door yourself a trap-door said raoul astonished for d'artagnan's words began to return to his memory and he had an indistinct recollection that d'artagnan had made use of the same word he looked but uselessly for some cleft or crevice which might indicate an opening or a ring to assist in lifting up the planking ah i forgot said madame henrietta i forgot the secret spring the fourth plank on the flooring press the spot where you will observe a knot in the wood those are the instructions press vicomte press i say yourself raoul pale as death pressed his finger on the spot which had been indicated to him at the same moment the spring began to work and the trap rose of its own accord it is ingenious enough certainly said the princess and one can see that the architect foresaw that a woman's hand only would have to make use of this spring for see how easily the trap-door opened without assistance a staircase cried raoul yes and a very pretty one too said madame henrietta see vicomte the staircase has a balustrade intended to prevent the falling of timid persons who might be tempted to descend the staircase and i will risk myself on it accordingly come vicomte follow me but before following you madame may i ask where the staircase leads to ah true i forgot to tell you you know perhaps that formerly monsieur de saint aignan lived in the very next apartment to the king yes madame i am aware of that that was the arrangement at least before i left and more than once i had the honor of visiting his rooms well he obtained the king's leave to change his former convenient and beautiful apartment for the two rooms to which the staircase will conduct us and which together form a lodging for him half the size and at ten times greater the distance from the king a close proximity to whom is by no means disdained in general by the gentlemen belonging to the court very good madame returned raoul but go on i beg for i do not understand yet well then it accidentally happened continued the princess that monsieur de saint-aignan's apartment is situated underneath 
the apartments of my maids of honour and by a further coincidence exactly underneath the room of la valliere but what was the motive of this trap-door and this staircase that i cannot tell you would you like to go down to monsieur de saint aignan's rooms perhaps we shall be able to find the solution of the enigma there and madame set the example by going down herself while raoul sighing deeply followed her at every step bragelonne took he advanced further into that mysterious apartment which had witnessed la valliere's sighs and still retained the perfume of her presence bragelonne fancied he perceived as he inhaled the atmosphere that the young girl must have passed through then succeeded to these emanations of herself which he regarded as invisible though certain proofs flowers she preferred to all others books of her own selection if raoul retained a single doubt on the subject it would have vanished at the secret harmony of tastes and connection of the mind with the ordinary objects of life la valliere in bragelonne's eyes was present there in each article of furniture and the color of the hangings in all that surrounded him dumb and now completely overwhelmed there was nothing further for him now to learn and he followed his pitiless conductress as blindly as the culprit follows the executioner while madame as cruel as women of overstrung temperaments generally are did not spare him the slightest detail but it must be admitted that notwithstanding the kind of apathy into which he had fallen none of these details even had he been left alone would have escaped him the happiness of the woman who loves when that happiness is derived from a rival is a living torture for a jealous man but for a jealous man such as raoul was for one whose heart for the first time in its existence was being steeped in gall and bitterness louise's happiness was in reality an ignominious death a death of body and soul he guessed all he fancied he could see them with their hands clasped in each other's their faces drawn close together and reflected side by side in loving proximity and they gazed upon the mirrors around them so sweet an occupation for lovers who as they thus see themselves twice over imprint the picture still more deeply on their memories he could guess too the stolen kiss snatched as they separated from each other's loved society the luxury the studied elegance eloquent of the perfection of indolence of ease the extreme care shown either to spare the loved object every annoyance or to occasion her a delightful surprise that might and majesty of love multiplied by the majesty and might of royalty itself seemed like a death-blow to raoul if there be anything which can in any way assuage or mitigate the tortures of jealousy it is the inferiority of the man who is preferred to yourself whilst on the very contrary if there be one anguish more bitter than another a misery for which language lacks a word it is the superiority of the man preferred to yourself superior perhaps in youth beauty grace it is in such moments as these that heaven almost seems to have taken part against the disdained and rejected lover one final pang was reserved for poor raoul madame henrietta lifted up a silk curtain and behind the canvas he perceived la valliere's portrait 
not only the portrait of la valliere but of la valliere radiant with youth beauty and happiness inhaling life and enjoyment at every pore because at eighteen years of age love itself is life louise murmured bragelonne louise is it true then oh you have never loved me for never have you looked at me in that manner and he felt as if his heart were crushed within his bosom madame henrietta looked at him almost envious of his extreme grief although she well knew there was nothing to envy in it and that she herself was as passionately loved by de guiche as louise by bragelonne raoul interpreted madame henrietta's look oh forgive me forgive me madame in your presence i know i ought to have greater self-control but heaven grant that you may never be struck by similar misery to that which crushes me at this moment for you are but a woman and would not be able to endure so terrible an affliction forgive me i again entreat you madame i am but a man without rank or position while you belong to a race whose happiness knows no bounds whose power acknowledges no limit monsieur de bragelonne replied henrietta a mind such as yours merits all the consideration and respect which a queen's heart even can bestow regard me as your friend monsieur and as such indeed i would not allow your whole life to be poisoned by perfidy and covered with ridicule it was i indeed who with more courage than any of your pretended friends i except monsieur de guiche who was the cause of your return from london it is i also who now give you the melancholy proofs necessary however for your cure if you are a lover with courage in his heart and not a weeping amadis do not thank me pity me even and do not serve the king less faithfully than you have done raoul smiled bitterly ah true true i was forgetting that the king is my master your liberty nay your very life is in danger a steady penetrating look informed madame henrietta that she was mistaken and that her last argument was not a likely one to affect the young man take care monsieur de bragelonne she said for if you do not weigh well all your actions you might throw into an extravagance of wrath a prince whose passions once aroused exceed the bounds of reason and you would thereby involve your friends and family in the deepest distress you must bend you must submit and you must cure yourself thank you madame i appreciate the advice your royal highness is good enough to give me and i will endeavor to follow it but one final word i beg name it should i be indiscreet in asking you the secret of the staircase of this trap-door a secret which it seems you have discovered nothing more simple for the purpose of exercising a surveillance over the young girls 
who are attached to my service i have duplicate keys of their doors it seemed very strange to me that monsieur de saint aignan should change his apartments it seemed very strange that the king should come to see monsieur de saint aignan every day and finally it seemed very strange that so many things should be done during your absence that the very habits and customs of the court appeared changed i do not wish to be trifled with by the king nor to serve as a cloak for his love affairs for after la valliere who weeps incessantly he will take a fancy to montalais who is always laughing and then to tonnay charente who does nothing but sing all day to act such a part as that would be unworthy of me i thrust aside the scruples which my friendship for you had suggested i discovered the secret i have wounded your feelings i know and i again entreat you to pardon me but i had a duty to fulfil i have discharged it you are now forewarned the tempest will soon burst protect yourself accordingly you naturally expect however that a result of some kind must follow replied bragelonne with firmness for you do not suppose i shall silently accept the shame thus thrust upon me or the treachery which has been practised against me you will take whatever steps in the matter you please monsieur raoul only do not betray the source whence you derived the truth that is all i have to ask the only price i require for the service i have rendered you fear nothing madame said bragelonne with a bitter smile i bribed the locksmith in whom the lovers confided you can just as well have done so as myself can you not yes madame your royal highness however has no other advice or caution to give me except that of not betraying you none i am about therefore to beg your royal highness to allow me to remain here for one moment without me oh no madame it matters very little for what i have to do can be done in your presence i only ask one moment to write a line to some one it is dangerous monsieur de bragelonne take care no one can possibly know that your royal highness has done me the honor to conduct me here besides i shall sign the letter i am going to write do as you please then raoul drew out his tablet and wrote rapidly on one of the leaves the following words monsieur le comte do not be surprised to find this paper signed by me the friend i shall very shortly send to call on you will have the honor to explain the object of my visit the comte raoul de bragelonne he rolled up the paper slipped it into the lock of the door which communicated with the room set apart for the two lovers and satisfied himself that this missive was so apparent that saint-aignan could not but see it as he entered he rejoined the princess who had already reached the top of the staircase they then separated raoul pretending to thank her highness henrietta pitying or seeming to pity with all her heart the wretched young man she had just condemned to such fearful torture oh she said as she saw him disappear pale as death and his eyes bursting with blood if i had foreseen this i would have hid the truth from that poor gentleman 
End of chapter 14. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 15 of The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexander Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Porthos's Plan of Action the great number of individuals we have introduced into this long story is the reason why each of them has been forced to appear only in turn according to the exigencies of the recital the result is that our readers have had no opportunity of meeting our friend porthos since his return from fontainebleau the honors which he had received from the king had not changed the easy affectionate character of that excellent-hearted man he may perhaps have held up his head a little higher than usual and a majesty of demeanour, as it were, may have betrayed itself since the honour of dining at the king's table had been accorded him. His majesty's banqueting-room had produced a certain effect on Porthos. Le Seigneur de Bracieux et de Pierrefond delighted to remember that during that memorable dinner the numerous array of servants and the large number of officials in attendance on the guests gave a certain tone and effect to the repast and seemed, as it were, to furnish the room porthos undertook to confer upon mouston a position of some kind or other in order to establish a sort of hierarchy among his other domestics and to create a military household which was not unusual among the great captains of the age since in the preceding century this luxury had been greatly encouraged by messieurs de treville de chamberg de la Vieville, without alluding to monsieur de richelieu Monsieur de Conde and de Bouillon Torraine, and therefore, why should not he, Porthos, the friend of the king and of Monsieur Fouquet, a baron, an engineer, etc., why should not he indeed enjoy all the delightful privileges which large possessions and unusual merit invariably confer? Somewhat neglected by Aramis, who we know was greatly occupied with Monsieur Fouquet neglected also on account of his being on duty by d'artagnan tired of truchen and planchet porthos was surprised to find himself dreaming without precisely knowing why but if anyone had said to him do you want anything porthos he would most certainly have replied yes after one of those dinners during which porthos attempted to recall to his recollection all the details of the royal banquet gently joyful thanks to the excellence of the wines gently melancholy thanks to his ambitious ideas porthos was gradually falling off into a placid doze when his servant entered to announce that monsieur de bragelonne wished to speak to him porthos passed into an adjoining room where he found his young friend in the disposition of mind we are already aware of raoul advanced toward porthos and shook him by the hand porthos surprised at his seriousness of aspect offered him a seat dear monsieur du vallon said raoul i have a service to ask of you nothing could happen more fortunately my young friend replied porthos i have eight thousand livres sent me this morning from pierrefond and if you want any money no i thank you it is not money so much the worse then i have always heard it said that that is the rarest service but the easiest to render the remark struck me i like to cite remarks that strike me 
your heart is as good as your mind is sound and true you are much too kind i declare you will dine here of course no i am not hungry hey not dine what a dreadful country england is not too much so indeed but well if such excellent fish and meat were not to be procured there it would hardly be endurable yes i came too i am listening only just allow me to take a little sip one gets thirsty in paris and he ordered a bottle of champagne to be brought and having first filled raoul's glass he filled his own drank it down at a gulp and then resumed i needed that in order to listen to you with proper attention i am now entirely at your service what do you wish to ask me dear raoul what do you want give me your opinion on quarrels in general my dear friend my opinion well but explain your idea a little more coherently replied porthos rubbing his forehead i mean you are generally good-humored good-tempered whenever any misunderstanding arises between a friend of yours and a stranger for instance oh in the best of tempers very good but what do you do in such a case whenever a friend of mine gets into a quarrel i always act on one principle what is that that lost time is irreparable and one never arranges an affair so well as when everything has been done to embroil the disputants as much as possible ah indeed is that the principle on which you proceed precisely so as soon as a quarrel takes place i bring the two parties together exactly you understand that by this means it is impossible for an affair not to be arranged i should have thought that treated in this manner an affair would on the contrary oh not the least in the world just fancy now i have had in my life something like a hundred and eighty to a hundred and ninety regular duels without reckoning hasty encounters or, or chance meetings it is a very handsome aggregate said raoul unable to resist a smile a mere nothing but i am so gentle d'artagnan reckons his duels by hundreds it is very true he is a little too hard and sharp i have often told him so and so resumed raoul you generally arrange the affairs of honor your friends confide to you there is not a single instance in which i have not finished by arranging every one of them said porthos with a gentleness and confidence that surprised raoul but the way in which you settle them is at least honorable i suppose oh rely upon that and at this stage i will explain my other principle to you as soon as my friend has entrusted his quarrel to me this is what i do i go to his adversary at once armed with a politeness and self-possession absolutely requisite under such circumstances that is the way then said raoul bitterly that you arrange affairs so safely 
I believe you. I go to the adversary then and say to him, It is impossible, monsieur, that you are ignorant of the extent to which you have insulted my friend. Raoul frowned at this remark. It sometimes happens, very often indeed, pursued Porthos, that my friend has not been insulted at all. He has even been the first to give offense. You can imagine, therefore, whether my language is or is not well chosen. And Porthos burst into a peal of laughter. Decidedly, said Raoul to himself, while the merry thunder of Porthos's laughter was resounding in his ears, I am very unfortunate. De Guiche treats me with coolness, D'Artagnan with ridicule. Porthos is too tame. No one will settle this affair in the only way I wish it to be settled, and I came to Porthos because I wanted to find a sword instead of cold reasoning at my service. My ill luck dogs me. Porthos, who had recovered himself, continued, My one simple expression. I leave my adversary without an excuse. That is as it may happen, said Raoul, absently. Not at all. It is quite certain. I have not left him with an excuse. And then it is that I display all my courtesy in order to attain the happy issue of my project. I advance, therefore, with an air of great politeness, and taking my adversary by the hand, I say to him, Now that you are convinced of having given the offence, we are sure of reparation between my friend and yourself. The future can only offer an exchange of mutual courtesies of conduct, and consequently my mission now is to acquaint you with the length of my friend's sword. What? said Raoul. Wait a minute. The length of my friend's sword. My horse is waiting below. My friend is in such and such a spot, and is impatiently awaiting your agreeable society. I will take you with me. We can call upon your second as we go along. And the affair is arranged. And so, said Raoul, pale with vexation, you reconcile the two adversaries on the ground? I beg your pardon, interrupted Porthos. Reconcile? What for? You said that the affair was arranged? Of course, since my friend is waiting for him. Well, what then? If he is waiting? Uh, well, if he is waiting, it is merely to stretch his legs a little. The adversary, on the contrary, is stiff from riding. They place themselves in proper order, and my friend kills the opponent, and the affair is ended. Ah! He kills him, then, cried Raoul. I should think so, said Porthos. Is it likely I should ever have as a friend a man who allows himself to get killed? I have a hundred and one friends. At the head of the list stand your father, Aramis, and D'Artagnan, all of whom are living and well, I believe. Oh, my dear baron, exclaimed Raoul as he embraced Porthos. You approve of my method, then, said the giant. I approve of it so thoroughly that I shall have recourse to use it this very day, without a moment's delay, at once, in fact. 
you are the very man I have been looking for. Good. Here I am, then. You want to fight, I suppose? Absolutely. It is very natural. With whom? With Monsieur de Saint-Aignan. I know him, a most agreeable man, who was exceedingly polite to me the day I had the honor of dining with the king. I shall certainly acknowledge his politeness in return, even if it had not happened to be my usual custom. So, he has given you an offense? A mortal offense. The deuce! I can say so, I suppose. More than that, even if you like. That is a very great convenience. I may look upon it as one of your arranged affairs, may I not? said Raoul, smiling. As a matter of course. Where will you be waiting for him? Ah, uh, I forgot. It is a very delicate matter. Monsieur de Saint-Aignan is a very great friend of the king's. So I have heard it said. So that if I kill him... Oh, you will kill him, certainly. You must take every precaution to do so. But there is no difficulty in these matters now. If you had lived in our early days... Ah, those were days worth living for. My dear friend, you do not quite understand me. I mean that Monsieur de Saint-Aignan, being a friend of the king, the affair will be more difficult to manage, since the king might learn beforehand. Oh, no, that is not likely. You know my method. Monsieur, you have just injured my friend, and— Yes, I know it. And then, monsieur, I have horses below. I carry him off before he can have spoken to any one. Will he allow himself to be carried off like that? I should think so. I should like to see it fail. It would be the first time if it did. It is true, though, that the young men of the present day— Bah! I would carry him off bodily, if that were all, added Porthos, adding gesture to speech, lifted Raoul and the chair he was sitting on off the ground, and carried them round the room. <laughs> Very good, said Raoul, laughing. All we'd have to do is to state the grounds of the quarrel with Monsieur de Saint-Aignan. Well, but that is done, it seems. No, my dear Monsieur de Vallon, the usage of the present day requires that the cause of the quarrel should be explained. Very good. Tell me what it is, then. The fact is... Deuce take it! How troublesome all this is! In former days we had no occasion to say anything about the matter. People fought for the sake of fighting, and I, for one, know no better reason than that. You are quite right, Monsieur de Vallon. However, tell me what the cause is. It is too long a story to tell, only as one must particularize to a certain extent and as, on the other hand, the affair is full of difficulties and requires the most absolute secrecy, you will have the kindness merely to tell Monsieur de Saint-Aignan that he has, in the first place, insulted me by changing his lodgings. By changing his lodgings? Good, said Porthos, who began to count on his fingers. 
next then in getting a trap-door made in his new apartments i understand said porthos a trap-door upon my word that is very serious you ought to be furious at that what the deuce does the fellow mean by getting trap-doors made without first consulting you trap-doors mordieu i haven't got any except in my dungeons at bracieux and you will please add said raoul that my last motive for considering myself insulted is the existence of the portrait that monsieur de saint-aignan well knows is it possible a portrait too a change of residence a trap-door and a portrait why my dear friend with but one of these causes of complaint there is enough more than enough for all the gentlemen in france and spain to cut each other's throats and that is saying but very little well my dear friend you are furnished with all you need i suppose i shall take a second horse with me select your own rendezvous and while you are waiting there you can practice some of the best passes so as to get your limbs as elastic as possible thank you i shall be waiting for you in the woods of vincennes close to minime all goes well then where am i to find this monsieur de saint-aignan at the palais royal porthos rang a huge bell my court suit he said to the servant who answered the summons my horse and a led horse to accompany me then turning to raoul as soon as the servant had quitted the room he said does your father know anything about this no i am going to write him and d'artagnan no nor d'artagnan either he is very cautious you know and might have diverted me from my purpose d'artagnan is a sound adviser though said porthos astonished that in his own loyal faith in d'artagnan any one could have thought of himself so long as there was a d'artagnan in the world dear monsieur de vallon said raoul do not question me any more i implore you i have told you all that i had to say it is prompt action i now expect sharp and decided as you know how to arrange it that indeed is my reason for having chosen you you will be satisfied with me replied porthos do not forget either that except ourselves no one must know anything of this meeting people generally find these things out said porthos dryly when a dead body is discovered in a wood but i promise everything my dear friend except the concealment of the dead body there it is and it must be seen as a matter of course it is a principle of mine not to bury bodies that has a smack of the assassin about it every risk has its peculiarities to work then my dear friend rely upon me said the giant finishing the bottle while a servant spread out upon a sofa the gorgeously decorated dress trimmed with lace raoul left the room saying to himself with a secret delight perfidious king traitorous monarch i cannot reach thee i do not wish it for kings are sacred objects but your 
friend your accomplice your panderer the coward who represents you shall pay for your crime i will kill him in thy name and afterwards we will bethink ourselves of louise end of chapter fifteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter sixteen of the man in the iron mask by alexander dumas translated by william robson this librivox recording is in the public domain the change of residence the trap-door and the portrait porthos entrusted to his great delight with this mission which made him feel young again took half an hour less than his usual time to put on his court suit to show that he was a man acquainted with the usages of high society he had begun by sending his lackey to inquire if monsieur de saint-aignan were at home and heard in answer that monsieur le comte de saint-aignan had had the honor of accompanying the king to saint-germain as well as the whole court but that the monsieur le comte had just that moment returned immediately upon this reply porthos made as much haste as possible and reached saint-aignan's apartments just as the latter was having his boots taken off the promenade had been delightful the king who was in love more than ever and of course happier than ever behaved in the most charming manner to every one nothing could possibly equal his kindness monsieur de saint-aignan it may be remembered was a poet and fancied that he had proved that he was so under too many a memorable circumstance to allow the title to be disputed by any one an indefatigable rhymester he had during the whole of the journey overwhelmed with quatrains sextains and madrigals first the king and then la valliere the king on his side was in a similarly poetic mood and had made a distich while la valliere delighting in poetry as most women do who are in love had composed two sonnets the day then had not been a bad one for apollo and so as soon as he had returned to paris saint aignan who knew beforehand that his verse would be sure to be extensively circulated in court circles occupied himself with a little more attention than he had been able to bestow during the promenade with the composition as well as with the idea itself consequently with all the tenderness of a father about to start his children in life he candidly interrogated himself whether the public would find these offsprings of his imagination sufficiently elegant and graceful and in order to make his mind easy on the subject monsieur de saint-aignan recited to himself the madrigal he had composed and which he had repeated from memory to the king and had promised to write out for him on his return all the time he was committing these words to memory the comte was engaged in undressing himself more completely he had just taken off his coat and was putting on his dressing-gown when he was informed that monsieur le baron de vallon de bracieux de pierrefonds was waiting to be received hey he said what does that bunch of names mean i don't know anything about him it is the same gentleman replied the lackey who had the honor of dining with you monseigneur at the king's table when his majesty was staying at fontainebleau introduce him then at once cried saint-aignan porthos in a few minutes entered the room monsieur de saint-aignan had an excellent recollection of persons and at the first glance he recognized the gentleman from the country who enjoyed so singular a reputation and whom the king had received so favorably at fontainebleau in spite of the smiles of some of those who were present he therefore advanced toward porthos with all the outward signs of consideration of manner which porthos thought but natural 
considering that he himself, whenever he called upon an adversary, hoisted a standard of the most refined politeness. Saint-Aignan desired the servant to give Porthos a chair, and the latter, who saw nothing unusual in this act of politeness, sat down gravely and coughed. The ordinary courtesies having been exchanged between the two gentlemen, the comte, to whom the visit was paid, said, "'May I ask, Monsieur le Baron, to what happy circumstance am I indebted for the favor of a visit from you?' "'The very thing I am about to have the honor of explaining to you, Monsieur le Comte, but I beg your pardon.' "'What is the matter, monsieur?' inquired Saint-Aignan. "'I regret to say that I have broken your chair.' "'Not at all, monsieur,' said Saint-Aignan. "'Not at all.' "'It is the fact, though, monsieur le comte, I have broken it, so much so indeed that if I do not move I shall fall down, which would be an exceedingly disagreeable position for me in the discharge of the very serious mission which has been entrusted to me with regard to yourself.' Porthos rose, and, but just in time, for the chair had given way several inches. Saint-Aignan looked about him for something more solid for his guest to sit upon. "'Modern articles of furniture,' said Porthos, while the comte was looking about, "'are constructed in a ridiculously flimsy manner. In my early days, when I used to sit down with far more energy than is now the case, I do not remember ever to have broken a chair, except in taverns with my arms.' Saint-Aignan smiled at this remark. "'But,' said Porthos, as he settled himself down on a couch which creaked, but did not give way beneath his weight, "'that unfortunately has nothing whatever to do with my present visit.' "'Why, unfortunately? Are you the bearer of a message of ill omen, Monsieur le Baron?' "'Of ill omen? For a gentleman? Certainly not, Monsieur le Comte,' replied Porthos nobly. I have simply come to say that you have seriously insulted a friend of mine. I, monsieur, exclaimed Saint-Aignan, I have insulted a friend of yours, do you say? May I ask his name? Monsieur Raoul de Bragelonne. I have insulted Monsieur Raoul de Bragelonne, cried Saint-Aignan. I really assure you, monsieur, that it is quite impossible for Monsieur de Bragelonne, whom I know but very slightly, nay, whom I know hardly at all, is in England, and as I have not seen him for a long time past, I cannot possibly have insulted him. Monsieur de Bragelonne is in Paris, Monsieur le Comte, said Porthos, perfectly unmoved, and I repeat, it is quite certain you have insulted him, since he himself told me you had— "'Yes, monsieur, you have seriously insulted him, mortally insulted him, I repeat.' "'It is impossible, monsieur le baron. I swear, quite impossible.' "'Besides,' added Porthos, "'you cannot be ignorant of the circumstance, since monsieur de Bragelonne informed me that he had already apprised you of it by a note.' "'I give you my word of honor monsieur that i have received no note whatever this is most extraordinary replied porthos i will convince you said saint-aignan that i have received nothing in any way from him and he rang the bell basque he said to the servant who entered 
How many letters or notes were sent here during my absence? Three, Monsieur le Comte. A note from Monsieur de Fiesque, one from Madame de la Fert, and a letter from Monsieur de las Fuentes. Is that all? Yes, Monsieur le Comte. Speak the truth before this gentleman. The truth you understand. I will take care you are not blamed. There was a note also from... from... Well, from whom? From Mademoiselle de... Out with it. De Laval. That is quite sufficient, interrupted Porthos. I believe you, Monsieur le Comte. Saint-Aignan dismissed the valet and followed him to the door in order to close it after him, and when he had done so looked straight before him, he happened to see in the keyhole of the adjoining apartment the paper which Bragelonne had slipped in there as he left. "'What is this?' he said. Porthos, who was sitting with his back to the room, turned round. "'Aha!' he said. "'A note in the keyhole!' exclaimed Saint-Aignan. "'That is not unlikely to be the missing letter, Monsieur le Comte.' said Porthos. Saint-Aignan took out the paper. "'A note from Monsieur de Bragelonne!' he exclaimed. "'You see, Monsieur, I was right. Oh, when I say a thing!' "'Brought here by Monsieur de Bragelonne himself!' the Comte murmured, turning pale. "'This is infamous! How could he possibly have come here?' And the Comte rang again. Who has been here during my absence with the king? No one, monsieur. That is impossible. Someone must have been here. No one could possibly have entered, monsieur, since the keys have never left my pocket. And yet I find the letter in yonder lock. Someone must have put it there. It could not have come here of its own accord. Basque opened his arms as if signifying the most absolute ignorance on the subject. "'Probably it was Monsieur de Bragelonne himself who put it there,' said Porthos. "'In that case, he must have entered here.' "'How could that have been, since I have the key in my own pocket?' returned Basque, perseveringly. Saint-Aignan crumpled the letter in his palm after having read it. "'There is something mysterious about this,' he murmured absorbed in thought porthos left him to his reflections but after a while returned to the mission he had undertaken shall we return to our little affair porthos resumed addressing saint-aignan after a brief pause i think i can now understand it from this note which has arrived here in so singular a manner monsieur de bragelonne says that a friend will call i am his friend I am the person he alludes to. For the purpose of giving me a challenge? Precisely. And he complains that I have insulted him. Mortally! In what way, may I ask? For his conduct is so mysterious that at least it needs some explanation. Monsieur, replied Porthos, my friend cannot but be right and as far as his conduct is concerned if it be mysterious as you say you have only yourself to blame for it porthos pronounced these words with an amount of confidence which 
for a man who was unaccustomed to his ways must have revealed an infinity of sense. Mystery so it be, but what is all the mystery about? said St. Aignan. You will think it best, perhaps, Porthos replied with a low bow, if I do not enter into particulars. Oh, I perfectly understand. We will touch very lightly upon it, then, so speak, monsieur. I am listening. In the first place, monsieur, said Porthos, you have changed your apartments. Yes, that is quite true, said Saint-Aignan. You admit it, said Porthos with an air of satisfaction. Admit it? Of course I admit it. Why should I not admit it, do you suppose? You have admitted it. Very good, said Porthos, lifting up one finger. But how can my having moved my lodgings have done Monsieur de Bragelonne any harm? Have the goodness to tell me that, for I positively do not comprehend a word of what you are saying. Porthos stopped him and then said with great gravity, Monsieur, this is the first of Monsieur de Bragelonne's complaints against you. If he makes a complaint, it is because he feels himself insulted. Saint-Aignan began to beat his foot impatiently on the ground. This looks like a spurious quarrel, he said. No one can possibly have a spurious quarrel with the Vicomte de Bragelonne, returned Porthos. But, at all events, you have nothing to add on the subject of your changing your apartments, I suppose. Nothing. And what is the next point? Ah, the next. You will observe, monsieur, that the one I have already mentioned is a most serious injury, to which you have given no answer, or rather have answered very indifferently. It is possible, monsieur, that you have changed your lodgings. Monsieur de Bragelonne feels insulted at your having done so, and you do not attempt to excuse yourself. What? cried Saint-Aignan, who was getting annoyed at the perfect coolness of his visitor. What? Am I to consult Monsieur de Bragelonne whether I am to move or not? You can hardly be serious, monsieur. I am, and it is absolutely necessary, monsieur, but under any circumstances you will admit that it is nothing in comparison with the second ground of complaint. Well, what is that? Porthos assumed a very solemn expression as he said, "'How about the trap-door, monsieur?' Saint-Aignan turned exceedingly pale. He pushed back his chair so abruptly that Porthos, simple as he was, perceived that the blow had told. "'The trap-door,' murmured Saint-Aignan. "'Yes, monsieur, explain that if you can.' said Porthos, shaking his head. Saint-Aignan held down his head as he murmured, "'I have been betrayed. Everything is known.' "'Everything,' replied Porthos, who knew nothing. "'You see me perfectly overwhelmed,' pursued Saint-Aignan, "'overwhelmed to a degree that I, I hardly know what I am about.' "'A guilty conscience, monsieur.' Your affair is a bad one, and when the public learns all about it, it will judge.' 
oh monsieur exclaimed the count hurriedly such a secret ought not to be known even by one's confessor that we will think about said porthos the secret will not go far in fact surely monsieur returned saint aignan since monsieur de bragelonne has penetrated the secret he must be aware of the danger he as well as others run the risk of incurring monsieur de bragelonne runs no danger monsieur nor does he fear any either as you if it please heaven will find out very soon this fellow is a perfect madman thought saint aignan what in heaven's name does he want he then said aloud come monsieur let us hush up this affair you forget the portrait said porthos in a voice of thunder which made the comte's blood freeze in his veins as the portrait in question was la valliere's portrait and no mistake could any longer exist on the subject saint aignan's eyes were completely opened ah he exclaimed ah monsieur i remember now that monsieur de bragelonne was engaged to be married to her porthos assumed an imposing air all the majesty of ignorance in fact as he said it matters nothing whatever to me nor to yourself indeed whether or not my friend was as you say engaged to be married i am even astonished that you should have made use of so indiscreet a remark it may possibly do your cause harm monsieur monsieur replied saint aignan you are the incarnation of intelligence delicacy and loyalty of feeling united i see the whole matter now clearly enough so much the better said porthos and pursued saint aignan you have made me comprehend it in the most ingenious in the most delicate manner possible i beg you to accept my best thanks porthos drew himself up unable to resist the flattery of the remark only now that i know everything permit me to explain porthos shook his head as a man who does not wish to hear but saint aignan continued i am in despair i assure you at all that has happened but how would you have acted in my place come between ourselves tell me what you would have done porthos drew himself up as he answered there is now no question at all of what i should have done young man you have been made acquainted with the three causes of complaint against you i believe as for the first my change of rooms and now i address myself to you as a man of honor and of great intelligence could i when the desire of so august a personage was so urgently expressed that i should move ought i to have disobeyed porthos was about to speak but saint aignan did not give him time to answer ah my frankness i see convinces you he said interpreting the movement according to his own fancy you feel that i am right porthos did not reply and so saint aignan continued i pass by that unfortunate trap-door he said placing his hand on porthos's arm that trap-door the occasion and means of so much unhappiness in which was constructed for you know what well then in plain truth do you suppose that it was i who of my own accord in such a place too had the trap-door made 
oh no you do not believe it and here again you feel you guess you understand the influence of a will superior to my own you can conceive the infatuation the blind irresistible passion which has been at work but thank heaven i am fortunate in speaking to a man who has so much sensitiveness of feeling and if it were not so indeed what an amount of misery and scandal would fall upon her poor girl and upon him whom i will not name porthos confused and bewildered by the eloquence and gestures of saint aignan made a thousand efforts to stem this torrent of words of which by the by he did not understand a single one he remained upright and motionless on his seat and that was all he could do saint aignan continued and gave a new inflection to his voice and an increasing vehemence to his gesture as for the portrait for i readily believe the portrait is the principal cause of complaint tell me candidly if you think me to blame who was it who wished to have her portrait was it i who who is in love with her is it i who wishes to gain her affection again is it i who took her likeness i do you think no a thousand times no i know monsieur de bragelonne must be in a state of despair i know these misfortunes are most cruel but i too am suffering as well and yet there is no possibility of offering any resistance suppose we were to fight we would be laughed at if he obstinately persists in his course he is lost you will tell me i know that despair is ridiculous but then you are a sensible man you have understood me i perceived by your serious thoughtful embarrassed air even that the importance of the situation we are placed in has not escaped you return therefore to monsieur de bragelonne thank him as i have indeed reason to thank him for having chosen as an intermediary a man of your high merit believe me that i shall on my side preserve an eternal gratitude for the man who has so ingenuously so cleverly arranged the misunderstanding between us and since ill luck would have it that this secret should be known to four instead of three why this secret which might make the most ambitious man's fortune i am delighted to share with you monsieur from the bottom of my heart i am delighted at it from this very moment you can make use of me as you please i place myself entirely at your mercy what can i possibly do for you what can i solicit nay require even you have only to speak monsieur only to speak and according to the familiarly friendly fashion of that period saint aignan threw his arms around porthos and clasped him tenderly in his embrace porthos allowed him to do this with the most perfect indifference speak resumed saint aignan what do you require monsieur said porthos i have a horse below be good enough to mount him he is a very good one and will play you no tricks mount on horseback what for inquired saint aignan with no little curiosity to accompany me to where monsieur de bragelonne is waiting us ah he wishes to speak to me i suppose i can well believe that he wishes to have the details very likely alas it is a very delicate matter but at the present moment i cannot for the king is waiting for me the king must wait then 
said Porthos. "'What do you say? The king must wait!' interrupted the finished courtier, with a smile of utter amazement, for he could not understand that the king could under any circumstances be supposed to have to wait. "'It is merely the affair of a very short hour,' returned Porthos. "'But where is Monsieur de Bragelonne waiting for me?' "'At the minima, at Vincennes.' Ah, "'Indeed! But are we going to laugh over the affair when we get there?' "'I don't think it likely,' said Porthos, as his face assumed a look of utter hardness. "'But the minimus is a rendezvous where duels take place. And what can I have to do with the minima?' Porthos slowly drew his sword and said, "'That is the length of my friend's sword.' "'Why, the man is mad!' cried Saint-Aignan. The color mounted to Porthos's face as he replied, "'If I had not the honor of being in your own apartment, monsieur, and of representing Monsieur de Bragelonne's interests, I would throw you out of the window. It will be merely a pleasure postponed, and you will lose nothing by waiting. Will you come with me to the minimum, monsieur, of your own free will?' "'But—' "'Take care. I will carry you if you do not come quickly.' "'Basque!' cried Saint-Aignan. As soon as Basque appeared, he said, "'The king wishes to see Monsieur le Comte.' "'That is very different,' said Porthos. "'The king's service before anything else. We will wait until this evening, monsieur.' And saluting Saint-Aignan with his usual courtesy, Porthos left the room, delighted at having arranged another affair. Saint-Aignan looked after him as he left, and then hastily putting on his court dress again, he ran off, arranging his costume as he went along, muttering to himself, "'The minimus! The minimus! We shall see how the king will fancy this challenge, for it is for him, after all, that is certain.'" End of chapter 16 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter Seventeen of *The Man in the Iron Mask* by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Rivals in Politics. On his return from the promenade, which had been so prolific in poetical effusions, and in which every one had paid his or her tribute to the muses, as the poets of the period used to say, the king found Monsieur Fouquet waiting for an audience. Monsieur Colbert had lain in wait for His Majesty in the corridor and followed him like a jealous and watchful shadow. Monsieur Colbert, with his square head, his vulgar and untidy, though rich costume, somewhat resembled a Flemish gentleman, after he had been overindulging in his national drink, beer. Fouquet, at sight of his enemy, remained perfectly unmoved, and during the whole of the scene which followed scrupulously resolved to observe a line of conduct particularly difficult to the man of superior mind, who does not even wish to show his contempt, for fear of doing his adversary too much honor. Colbert made no attempt to conceal his insolent expression of the vulgar joy he felt. In his opinion, Monsieur Fouquet's was a game very badly played and hopelessly lost, although not yet finished. Colbert belonged to that school of politicians who think cleverness alone worthy of their admiration and success the only thing worth caring for. Colbert, moreover, who was not simply an envious and jealous man, but who had the king's interests really at heart, 
because he was thoroughly imbued with the highest sense of probity in all matters of figures and accounts could well afford to assign as a pretext for his conduct that in hating and doing his utmost to ruin monsieur fouquet he had nothing in view but the welfare of the state and the dignity of the crown none of these details escaped fouquet's observation through his enemy's thick bushy brows and despite the restless movement of his eyelids he could by merely looking at his eyes penetrate to the very bottom of colbert's heart and he read to what an unbounded extent hate toward himself and triumph at his approaching fall existed there but as in observing everything he wished to remain himself impenetrable he composed his features smiled with the charmingly sympathetic smile that was peculiarly his own and saluted the king with the most dignified and graceful ease and elasticity of manner sire he said i perceive by your majesty's joyous air that you have been gratified with the promenade most gratified indeed monsieur le surintendant most gratified you were very wrong not to come with us as i invited you to do i was working sire replied the superintendent who did not even seem to take the trouble to turn aside his head in merest respect of colbert's presence ah monsieur fouquet cried the king there is nothing like the country i should be delighted to live in the country always in the open air and under the trees i should hope that your majesty is not yet weary of the throne said fouquet no but thrones of soft turf are very pleasant your majesty gratifies my utmost wishes in speaking in that manner for i have a request to submit to you on whose behalf monsieur on behalf of the nymphs of vaux sire aha said louis the fourteenth your majesty too once deigned to make me a promise said fouquet yes i remember it the fete at vaux the celebrated fete i think it was sire said colbert endeavoring to show his importance by taking part in the conversation fouquet with the profoundest contempt did not take the slightest notice of the remark as if as far as he was concerned colbert had not even thought or said a word your majesty is aware he said that i destined my estate at vaux to receive the most amiable of princes the most powerful of monarchs i have given you my promise monsieur said louis the fourteenth smiling and a king never departs from his word and i have come now sire to inform your majesty that i am ready to obey your orders in every respect do you promise me many wonders monsieur le surintendant said louis looking at colbert wonders oh no sire i do not undertake that i hope to be able to procure your majesty a little pleasure perhaps even a little forgetfulness of the cares of your state nay nay monsieur fouquet returned the king i insist upon the word wonders you are a magician i believe we all know the power you wield we also know that you can find gold even when there is none to be found elsewhere so much so indeed that people say you coin it fouquet felt that the shot was discharged from a double quiver and that the king had launched an arrow from his own bow 
as well as one from Colbert's. Oh, ho, 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 he said laughingly, the people know perfectly well out of what mine I procure the gold, and they know it only too well, perhaps. Besides, he added, I can assure your majesty that the gold destined to pay the expenses of the fete at Vaux will cost neither blood nor tears, hard labor it may, perhaps, but that can be paid for. Louis paused, quite confused. He wished to look at Colbert. Colbert, too, wished to reply to him. A glance as swift as an eagle's, a king-like glance indeed, which Fouquet darted at the latter, arrested the words upon his lips. The king, who had by this time recovered his self-possession, turned toward Fouquet, saying, "'I presume, therefore, I am now to consider myself formally invited?' "'Yes, sire.' if your majesty will condescend so far as to accept my invitation what day have you fixed any day your majesty may find most convenient you speak like an enchanter who has but to conjure up in actuality the wildest fancies monsieur fouquet i could not say so much indeed myself your majesty will do whenever you please everything that a monarch can and ought to do the king of france has servants at his bidding who are able to do anything on his behalf to accomplish everything to gratify his pleasures colbert tried to look at the superintendent in order to see whether this remark was an approach to less hostile sentiments on his part but fouquet had not even looked at his enemy and Colbert hardly seemed to exist as far as he was concerned. "'Very good, then,' said the king. "'Will a week hence suit you?' "'Perfectly well, sire.' "'This is Tuesday. "'If I give you until next Sunday week, will that be sufficient?' "'The delay which your majesty deigns to accord me will greatly aid the various works.' which my architects have in hand for the purpose of adding to the amusement of your majesty and your friends by the by speaking of my friends resumed the king how do you intend to treat them the king is master everywhere sire your majesty will draw up your own list and give your own orders all those you may deign to invite will be my guests my honored guests indeed i thank you returned the king touched by the noble thought expressed in so noble a tone fouquet therefore took leave of louis the fourteenth after a few words had been added with regard to the details of certain matters of business he felt that colbert would remain behind with the king that they would both converse about him, and that neither of them would spare him in the least degree. The satisfaction of being able to give a last and terrible blow to his enemy seemed to him almost like a compensation for everything they were about to subject him to. He turned back again immediately, as soon, indeed, as he had reached the door, and addressing the king said, "'I was forgetting that I had to crave your majesty's forgiveness.' in what respect said the king graciously for having committed a serious fault without perceiving it a fault you ha monsieur fouquet 
i shall be unable to do otherwise than forgive you in what way or against whom have you been found wanting against every sense of propriety sire i forgot to inform your majesty of a circumstance that has lately occurred of some little importance what is it colbert trembled he fancied that he was about to frame a denunciation against him his conduct had been unmasked a single syllable from fouquet a single proof formally advanced and before the youthful loyalty of feeling which guided louis the fourteenth colbert's favor would disappear at once the latter trembled therefore lest so daring a blow might overthrow his whole scaffold in point of fact the opportunity was so admirably suited to be taken advantage of that a skilful practised player like aramis would not have let it slip sire said fouquet with an easy unconcerned air since you have had the kindness to forgive me i am perfectly indifferent about my confession this morning i sold one of the official appointments i hold one of your appointments said the king which colbert turned perfectly livid that which conferred upon me sire a grand gown and a stern air of gravity the appointment of procurer-general the king involuntarily uttered a loud exclamation and looked at colbert who with his face bedewed with perspiration felt almost on the point of fainting to whom have you sold this department monsieur fouquet inquired the king colbert was obliged to lean against the column of the fireplace to a councillor belonging to the parliament sire whose name is vanel vanel yes sire a particular friend of the intendant colbert added fouquet letting every word fall from his lips with the most inimitable nonchalance and with an admirably assumed expression of forgetfulness and ignorance and having finished and having overwhelmed colbert beneath the weight of this superiority the superintendent again saluted the king and quitted the room partially revenged by the stupefaction of the king and the humiliation of the favorite is it really possible said the king as soon as fouquet had disappeared that he has sold that office yes sire said colbert meaningly he must be mad the king added colbert this time did not reply he had penetrated the king's thought a thought which amply revenged him for the humiliation he had just been made to suffer his hatred was augmented by a feeling of bitter jealousy of fouquet and a threat of disgrace was now added to the plan he had arranged for his ruin colbert felt perfectly assured that for the future between louis the fourteenth and himself their hostile feelings and ideas would meet with no obstacles and that at the first fault committed by fouquet which could be laid hold of as a pretext the chastisement so long impending would be precipitated fouquet had thrown aside his weapons of defence and hate and jealousy had picked them up colbert was invited by the king to the fete at vaux he bowed like a man confident in himself and accepted the invitation with an air of one who almost confers a favor the king was about writing down saint aignan's name on his list of royal commands when the usher announced the comte de saint aignan as soon as the royal mercury entered 
Colbert discreetly withdrew. End of chapter 17. Recording by John Van Stan. Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 18 of The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexander Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Rivals in Love Saint-Aignan had quitted Louis Fourteenth hardly a couple of hours before, but in the first effervescence of his affection, whenever Louis Fourteenth was out of sight of La Valliere, he was obliged to talk about her. Besides, the only person with whom he could speak about her at his ease was Saint-Aignan, and thus Saint-Aignan had become an indispensable. "'Ha! Ah, is that you, Comte?' he exclaimed, as soon as he perceived him, doubly delighted, not only to see him again, but also to get rid of Colbert, whose scowling face always put him out of humour. "'So much the better. I am very glad to see you. You will make one of the best travelling party, I suppose?' "'Of what travelling part are you speaking, sire?' inquired Saint-Aignan the one we are making up to go to the fete the superintendent is about to give at vaux ah saint-aignan you will at last see a fete a royal fete by the side of which all our amusements at fontainebleau are petty contemptible affairs at vaux the superintendent is going to give a fete in your majesty's honour nothing more than that nothing more than that do you say it is very diverting to find you treating it with so much disdain are you who express such indifference on the subject aware that as soon as it is known that monsieur fouquet is going to receive me at vaux next sunday week people will be striving their very utmost to get invited to the fete i repeat saint aignan you shall be one of the invited guests very well sire unless i shall in the meantime have undertaken a longer and less agreeable journey what journey do you allude to the one across the stick sire bah said louis the fourteenth laughing no seriously sire replied saint-aignan i am invited and in such a way in truth that i hardly know what to say or how to act in order to refuse the invitation i do not understand you I know that you are in a poetical vein, but try not to sink from Apollo to Phoebus. Very well. If your majesty will deign to listen to me, I will not keep your mind on the rack a moment longer. Speak. Your majesty knows the Baron de Vallon. Yes, indeed. A good servant to my father, the late king, and an admirable companion at table— for I think you are referring to the gentleman who dined with us at Fontainebleau. Precisely so. But you have omitted to add to his other qualifications, sire, that he is a most charming polisher-off of other people. What? Does Monsieur de Vallon wish to polish you off? Or to get me killed, which is much the same thing. The deuce! Do not laugh, sire for I am not saying one word beyond the exact truth. And you say he wishes to get you killed? Such is that excellent person's present idea. Be easy. I will defend you if he be in the wrong. Ah, there is an if. Of course. Answer me as candidly as if it were someone else's affair instead of your own. 
my poor saint aignan is he right or wrong your majesty shall be the judge what have you done to him to him personally nothing at all but it seems to one of his friends i have it is all the same is his friend one of the celebrated four no it is the son of one of the celebrated four though what have you done to the son come tell me why it seems that i have helped someone to take his mistress from him you confess it then i cannot help confessing it for it is true in that case you are wrong and if he were to kill you you would be doing perfectly right ah that is your majesty's way of reasoning then do you think it a bad way it is a very expeditious way at all events good justice is prompt so my grandfather henry the fourth used to say in that case your majesty will perhaps be good enough to sign my adversary's pardon for he is now waiting for me at the minimus for the purpose of putting me out of my misery his name and a parchment there is a parchment upon your majesty's table and for his name well what is it the vicomte de bragelonne sire the vicomte de bragelonne exclaimed the king changing from a fit of laughter to the most profound stupor and then after a moment's silence while he wiped his forehead which was bedewed with perspiration he again murmured bragelonne no other sire bragelonne who was affianced to yes sire but he has been in london yes but i can assure you sire he is there no longer is he in paris then he is at minimus sire where he is waiting for me as i have already had the honor of telling you does he know all yes and many things besides perhaps your majesty would like to look at the letter i have received from him and saint aignan drew from his pocket the note we are already acquainted with when your majesty has read the letter i will tell you how it reached me the king read it in a great agitation and immediately said well well sire your majesty knows a certain carved lock closing a certain door of carved ebony which separates a certain apartment from a certain blue and white sanctuary of course louise's boudoir yes sire well it was in the keyhole of that lock that i found yonder note who placed it there either monsieur de bragelonne or the devil himself but inasmuch as the note smells of musk and not of sulphur i conclude that it must be not the devil but monsieur de bragelonne louis bent his head and seemed absorbed in sad and bitter thought perhaps something like remorse was at that moment passing through his heart the secret is discovered he said sire i shall do my utmost that the secret dies in the breast of the man who possesses it said saint aignan in a tone of bravado as he moved toward the door but 
a gesture of the king made him pause where are you going he inquired where they await me sire what for to fight in all probability you fight exclaimed the king one moment if you please monsieur le comte saint aignan shook his head as a rebellious child does whenever anyone interferes to prevent him throwing himself into a well or playing with a knife but sire he said in the first place continued the king i want to be enlightened a little further upon all points if your majesty will be pleased to interrogate me replied saint aignan i will throw what light i can who told you that monsieur de bragelonne had penetrated into that room the letter which i found in the keyhole told me who told you that it was de bragelonne who put it there who but himself would have dared to undertake such a mission you are right how was he able to get into your rooms ah that is very serious inasmuch as all the doors were closed and my lackey basque had the keys in his pocket your lackey must have been bribed impossible sire for if he had been bribed those who did so would not have sacrificed the poor fellow whom it is not unlikely they might want to turn to further use by and by in showing so clearly that it was he whom they had made use of quite true and now i can only form one conjecture tell me what it is sire and we shall see if it is the same that has presented itself to my mind that he effected an entrance by means of the staircase alas sire that seems to me more than probable there is no doubt that some one must have sold the secret of the trap-door either sold it or given it why do you make that distinction because there are certain persons sire who being above the price of treason give and do not sell what do you mean oh sire your majesty's mind is too clear-sighted not to guess what i mean and you will save me the embarrassment of naming the person i allude to you are right you mean madame i suppose her suspicions were aroused by your changing your lodgings madame has the keys of the apartments of her maids of honor and she is powerful enough to discover what no one but yourself could do or she would not be able to discover anything and you suppose then that my sister must have entered into an alliance with bragelonne and has informed him of all the details of the affair possibly even better still for she perhaps accompanied him there which way through your own apartments you think it impossible sire well listen to me your majesty knows that madame is very fond of perfumes yes she acquired that taste from my mother vervain particularly yes it is the scent she prefers to all others very good sire my apartments happen to smell very strongly of vervain the king remained silent and thoughtful for a few moments and then resumed but why should madame take bragelonne's part against me saint-aignan could very easily have replied 
a woman's jealousy the king probed his friend to the bottom of his very heart to ascertain if he had learned the secret of his flirtation with his sister-in-law but saint aignan was not an ordinary courtier he did not lightly run the risk of finding out family secrets and he was too a friend of the muses not to think very frequently of poor ovidius nasso whose eyes shed so many tears in expiation of his crime for having once beheld something one hardly knows what in the palace of augustus he therefore passed by madame's secret very skilfully but as he had shown no ordinary sagacity in indicating madame's presence in his rooms in company with bragelonne it was necessary of course for him to repay with interest the king's amour propre and reply plainly to the question which had been put to him of why has madame taken bragelonne's part against me why replied saint-aignan your majesty forgets i presume that the comte de guiche is the intimate friend of the vicomte de bragelonne i do not see the connection however said the king ah i beg your pardon then sire but i thought the comte de guiche was a very great friend of madame's quite true the king returned there is no occasion to search any further the blow came from that direction and is not your majesty of opinion that in order to ward it off it will be necessary to deal another blow yes but not one of the kind given in the bois de vincennes replied the king you forget sire said saint-aignan that i am a gentleman and that i have been challenged the challenge neither concerns nor was it intended for you but i am the man sire who has been expected at the minima sire during the last hour or more i shall be dishonored if i do not go the first honor and duty of a gentleman is obedience to his sovereign sire i order you to remain sire obey monsieur as your majesty pleases besides i wish to have the whole of this affair explained i wish to know how it is that i have been so insolently trifled with as to have the sanctuary of my affections pried into it is not you saint-aignan whose business it is to punish those who have acted in this manner for it is not your honour they have attacked but my own i implore your majesty not to overwhelm monsieur de bragelonne with your wrath for although in the whole of this affair he may have shown himself deficient in prudence he has not been so in his feelings of loyalty enough i shall know how to decide between the just and the unjust even in the height of my anger but take care that not a word of this is breathed to madame but what am i to do with regard to monsieur de bragelonne he will be seeking me in every direction and i shall either have spoken to him or taken care that he has been spoken to before the evening is over let me once more entreat your majesty to be indulgent toward him i have been indulgent long enough comte said louis the fourteenth frowning severely it is now quite time to show certain persons that i am master in my own palace the king had hardly pronounced these words which betokened that a fresh feeling of irritation was mingling with the recollections of old 
when an usher appeared at the door of the cabinet. "'What is the matter?' inquired the king. "'And why do you presume to come when I have not summoned you?' "'Sire,' said the usher, "'your majesty desired me to permit Monsieur le Comte de la Fere to pass freely on any and every occasion when he might wish to speak to your majesty.' "'Well, monsieur?' "'Monsieur le Comte de la Fere is now waiting to see your majesty.' The king and Saint-Aignan at this reply exchanged a look which betrayed more uneasiness than surprise. Louis hesitated for a moment, but immediately afterwards, seeming to make up his mind, he said, "'Go, Saint-Aignan, and find Louise. Inform her of the plot against us. Do not let her be ignorant that Madame will return to her system of persecutions against her, and that she has set those to work who would have found it far safer to remain neuter.' sire if louise gets nervous and frightened reassure her as much as you can tell her that the king's affection is an impenetrable shield over her if which i suspect is the case she already knows everything or if she has already been herself subjected to an attack of some kind or other from any quarter tell her be sure to tell her saint-aignan added the king trembling with passion tell her i say that this time instead of defending her i will avenge her and that too so terribly that no one will in future even dare to raise his eyes toward her is that all sire yes all go as quickly as you can and remain faithful for you who live in the midst of this state of infernal torments have not like myself the hope of the paradise beyond it saint aignan exhausted himself in protestations of devotion took the king's hand kissed it and left the room radiant with delight end of chapter 18 recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter 19 of the man in the iron mask by alexander dumas translated by william robson this librivox recording is in the public domain king and noble the king endeavored to recover his self-possession as quickly as possible, in order to meet Monsieur de la Fere with an untroubled countenance. He clearly saw it was not mere chance that had induced the comte's visit. He had some vague impression of its importance, but he felt that to a man of Athos's tone of mind, to one of such a high order of intellect, his first reception ought not to present anything either disagreeable or otherwise than kind and courteous. As soon as the king had satisfied himself that, as far as appearances went, he was perfectly calm again. He gave directions to the ushers to introduce the comte. A few minutes afterwards, Athos, in full court dress, and with his breast covered with the orders that he alone had the right to wear at the court of France, presented himself with so grave and solemn an air that the king perceived, at the first glance, that he was not deceived in his anticipations. Louis advanced a step toward the comte, and with a smile held out his hand to him over which athos bowed with an air of the deepest respect monsieur le comte de la fere said the king rapidly you are so seldom here that it is a real piece of good fortune to see you athos bowed and replied i should wish always to enjoy the happiness of being near your majesty the tone however in which this reply was conveyed evidently signified i should wish to be one of your majesty's advisers 
to save you the commission of faults. The king felt it so, and determined in this man's presence to preserve all the advantages which could be derived from his command over himself, as well as from his rank and position. "'I see you have something to say to me,' he said. "'Had it not been so, I should not have presumed to present myself before your majesty.' "'Speak quickly. I am anxious to satisfy you,' returned the king, seating himself. "'I am persuaded.' replied Athos, in a somewhat agitated tone of voice, that your majesty will give me every satisfaction. "'Ah!' said the king, with a certain haughtiness of manner. "'You have come to lodge a complaint here, then?' "'It would be a complaint,' returned Athos, "'only in the event of your majesty, but if you will deign to permit me, sire, I will begin the conversation from the very commencement.' "'Do so,' I am listening. Your Majesty will remember that at the period of the Duke of Buckingham's departure I had the honor of an interview with you. At or about that period, I think I remember you did, only with regard to the subject of the conversation, I have quite forgotten it. Athos started as he replied, I shall have the honor to remind Your Majesty of it. It was with regard to a formal demand. I had addressed to you respecting a marriage which Monsieur de Bragelonne wished to contract with Mademoiselle de la Valliere. Ah, thought the king, we have come to it now. I remember, he said aloud. At that period, pursued Athos, your majesty was so kind and generous towards Monsieur de Bragelonne and myself that not a single word which then fell from your lips has escaped my memory and when i asked your majesty to accord me mademoiselle de la valliere's hand for monsieur de bragelonne you refused quite true said louis dryly alleging athos hastened to say that the young lady had no position in society louis could hardly force himself to listen with an appearance of royal propriety that added athos she had but little fortune the king threw himself back in his armchair that her extraction was indifferent a renewed impatience on the part of the king and little beauty added athos pitilessly this last bolt buried itself deep in the king's heart and made him almost bound from his seat you have a good memory monsieur he said i invariably have on occasions when i have had the distinguished honor of an interview with your majesty retorted the comte without being in the least disconcerted very good it is admitted that i said all that and i thanked your majesty for your remarks at the time because they testified an interest in monsieur de bragelonne which did him much honor and you may possibly remember said the king very deliberately that you had the greatest repugnance for this marriage quite true sire and that you solicited my permission much against your own inclination yes sire and finally i remember for i have a memory nearly as good as your own i remember i say that you observed at that time i do not believe that mademoiselle de la valliere loves monsieur de bragelonne 
is that true the blow told well but athos did not draw back sire he said i have already begged your majesty's forgiveness but there are certain particulars in that conversation which are only intelligible from the denouement well what is the denouement monsieur this that your majesty then said that you would defer the marriage out of regard for monsieur de bragelonne's own interests the king remained silent monsieur de bragelonne is now so exceedingly unhappy that he cannot any longer defer asking your majesty for a solution of the matter the king turned pale athos looked at him with fixed attention and what said the king with considerable hesitation does monsieur de bragelonne request precisely the very thing that i came to ask your majesty for at my last audience namely your majesty's consent to his marriage the king remained perfectly silent the questions which referred to the different obstacles in the way are all now quite removed for us continued athos mademoiselle de la valliere without fortune birth or beauty is not the less on that account the only good match in the world for monsieur de bragelonne since he loves this young girl the king pressed his hands impatiently together does your majesty hesitate inquired the comte without losing a particle of either his firmness or his politeness i do not hesitate i refuse replied the king athos paused a moment as if to collect himself i have had the honor he said in a mild tone to observe to your majesty that no obstacle now interferes with monsieur de bragelonne's affections and that his determination seems unalterable there is my will and that is an obstacle i should imagine that is the most serious of all athos replied quickly ah and we may therefore be permitted to ask your majesty with the greatest humility your reason for this refusal the reason a question to me exclaimed the king a demand sire the king leaning with both his hands upon the table said in a deep tone of concentrated passion you have lost all recollection of what is usual at court at court please to remember no one ventures to put a question to the king very true sire but if men do not question they conjecture Con conjecture what may that mean monsieur very frequently sire conjecture with regard to a particular subject implies a want of frankness on the part of the king monsieur and a want of confidence on the part of the subject pursued athos intrepidly you forget yourself said the king hurried away by anger in spite of all his self-control sire i am obliged to seek elsewhere for what i thought i should find in your majesty instead of obtaining a reply from you i am compelled to make one for myself the king rose monsieur le comte he said i have now given you all the time i had at my disposal this was a dismissal sire replied the comte 
I have not yet had time to tell your majesty what I came, with the express object of saying, and I so rarely see your majesty that I ought to avail myself of the opportunity. Just now you spoke rudely of conjectures. You are now becoming offensive, monsieur. Oh, sire, offend your majesty. I never. All my life through I have maintained that kings are above all other men, not only from their rank and power, but from their nobleness of heart and their true dignity of mind. I never can bring myself to believe that my sovereign, he who passed his word to me, did so with a mental reservation. What do you mean? What mental reservation do you allude to? I will explain my meaning, said Athos coldly. If, in refusing Mademoiselle de la Valliere to Monsieur de Bragelonne, your majesty had some other object in view than the happiness and fortune of the vicomte. You perceive, monsieur, that you are offending me. If, in requiring the vicomte to delay his marriage, your majesty's only object was to remove the gentleman to whom Mademoiselle de Valliere was engaged. Monsieur, monsieur, I have heard it said so in every direction, sire. Your majesty's affection for Mademoiselle de la Valliere is spoken of on all sides. The king tore his gloves, which he had been biting for some time. Woe to those, he cried, who interfere in my affairs. I have made up my mind to take a particular course, and I will break through every obstacle in my way. What obstacle? said Athos. The king stopped short, like a horse which, having taken the bit between his teeth and run away, finds it has slipped it back again, and that his career is checked. I love Mademoiselle de la Valliere, he said suddenly, with mingled nobleness of feeling and passion. But, interrupted Athos, that does not preclude your majesty from allowing Monsieur de Bragelonne to marry Mademoiselle de la Valliere. The sacrifice is worthy of so great a monarch. It is fully merited by Monsieur de Bragelonne, who has already rendered great service to your majesty, and who may well be regarded as a brave and worthy man. Your majesty, therefore, in renouncing the affection you entertain, offers a proof at once of generosity, gratitude, and good policy. Mademoiselle de la Valliere does not love Monsieur de Bragelonne said the king hoarsely. "'Does your majesty know that to be the case?' remarked Athos with a searching look. "'I do know it.' "'Since a very short time, then, for doubtless, had your majesty known it when I first preferred my request, you would have taken the trouble to inform me of it.' "'Since a very short time, it is true, monsieur.' Athos remained silent for a moment and then resumed. "'In that case, I do not understand why your majesty should have sent Monsieur de Bragelonne to London. That exile, and most properly so, too, is a matter of astonishment to everyone who regards your majesty's honor with sincere affection.' "'Who presumes to impugn my honor, Monsieur de la Fere?' The king's honor, sire, is made up of the honor of his whole nobility. Whenever the king offends one of his gentlemen, that is, whenever he deprives him of the smallest particle of his honor, it is from him 
from the king himself that that portion of honor is stolen monsieur de la fere said the king haughtily sire you sent monsieur de bragelonne to london either before you were mademoiselle de la valliere's lover or since you have become so the king irritated beyond measure especially because he felt that he was being mastered endeavored to dismiss athos by a gesture sire replied the comte i will tell you all i will not leave your presence until i have been satisfied by your majesty or by myself satisfied if you prove to me that you are right satisfied if i prove to you that you are wrong nay sire you can but listen to me i am old now and i am attached to everything that is really great and really powerful in your kingdom i am of those who have shed their blood for your father and for yourself without ever having asked a single favor either from yourself or from your father i have never inflicted the slightest wrong or injury on any one in this world and even kings are still my debtors you can but listen to me i repeat i have come to ask you for an account of the honor of one of your servants whom you have deceived by a falsehood or betrayed by want of heart of judgment i know that these words irritate your majesty but the facts themselves are killing us i know that you are endeavoring to find some means whereby to chastise me for my frankness but i know also the chastisement i will implore god to inflict upon you when i relate to him your perjury and my son's unhappiness the king during these remarks was walking hurriedly to and fro his hand thrust into the breast of his coat his head haughtily raised his eyes blazing with wrath monsieur he cried suddenly if i acted toward you as a king you would be already punished but i am only a man and i have the right to love in this world every one who loves me a happiness which is so rarely found you cannot pretend to such a right as a man any more than as a king sire or if you intend to exercise that right in a loyal manner you shall have told monsieur de bragelonne so and not have exiled him it is too great a condescension monsieur to discuss these things with you interrupted louis the fourteenth with that majesty of air and manner he alone seemed able to give his look and his voice i was hoping that you would reply to me said the comte you shall know my reply monsieur you already know my thoughts on the subject was the comte de la fere's answer you have forgotten you are speaking to the king monsieur it is a crime you have forgotten you are destroying the lives of two men sire it is a mortal sin leave the room not until i have said this son of louis the thirteenth you begin your reign badly for you begin it by abduction and disloyalty my race myself too are now freed from all that affection and respect towards you which i made my son swear to observe in the vaults of st denis in the presence of the relics of your noble forefathers you are now become our enemy sire and henceforth we have nothing to do save with heaven alone our sole master be warned be warned sire what do you threaten oh no sire said athos sadly 
I have as little bravado as fear in my soul. The God of whom I spoke to you now is listening to me. He knows that for the safety and honor of your crown I would even yet shed every drop of blood twenty years of civil and foreign warfare have left in my veins. I can well say, then, that I threaten the king as little as I threaten the man. But I tell you, sire, you lose two servants, for you have destroyed faith in the heart of the father and love in the heart of the son. The one ceases to believe in the royal word, the other no longer believes in the loyalty of the man or the purity of woman. The one is dead to every feeling of respect, the other to obedience. Adieu! Thus saying, Athos broke his sword across his knee, slowly placed the two pieces upon the floor, and saluting the king, who was almost choking from rage and shame, he quitted the cabinet. Louis, who sat near the table completely overwhelmed, was several minutes before he could collect himself. But he suddenly rose and rang the bell violently. "'Tell Monsieur d'Artagnan to come here,' he said to the terrified ushers. End of chapter 19 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 20 of The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After the Storm Our readers will doubtlessly have been asking themselves how it happened that Athos, of whom not a word has been said for some time past, arrived so very opportunely at court. We will, without delay, endeavor to satisfy their curiosity. Porthos, faithful to his duty as an arranger of affairs, had immediately after leaving the Palais Royal set off to join Raoul at the Minima in the Bois de Vincennes, and had related everything, even to the smallest details, which had passed between Saint-Aignan and himself. He finished by saying that the message which the king had sent to his favorite would probably not occasion more than a short delay, and that Saint-Aignan, as soon as he could leave the king, would not lose a moment in accepting the invitation Raoul had sent him. But Raoul, less credulous than his old friend, had concluded from Porthos's recital that if Saint-Aignan was going to the king, Saint-Aignan would tell the king everything, and that the king would most assuredly forbid Saint-Aignan to obey the summons he had received to the hostile meeting. The consequence of his reflections was that he had left Porthos to remain at the place appointed for the meeting in the very improbable case that Saint-Aignan would come there, having endeavored to make Porthos promise that he would not remain there more than an hour or an hour and a half at the very longest. Porthos, however, formally refused to do anything of the kind, but, on the contrary, installed himself in the minima as if he were going to take root there, making Raoul promise that when he had been to see his father he would return to his own apartments, in order that Porthos's servant might know where to find him, in case Monsieur de Saint-Aignan should happen to come to the rendezvous. Bragelonne had left Vincennes and proceeded at once straight to the apartments of Athos, who had been in Paris during the last two days, the Comte having already been informed of what had taken place by a letter from D'Artagnan. Raoul arrived at his father's, Athos, after having held out his hand to him and embraced him most affectionately, made a sign for him to sit down. "'I know you come to me as a man would go to a friend, Vicomte, whenever he is suffering. Tell me, therefore.' What is it that brings you now? The young man bowed and began his recital. More than once in the course of it his tears almost choked his utterance, and a sob checked in his throat, 
compelled him to suspend his narrative for a few minutes. Athos most probably already knew how matters stood. As we have just now said, D'Artagnan had already written to him, but preserving until the conclusion that calm, unruffled composure of manner which constituted the almost superhuman side of his character, he replied, Raoul, I do not believe there is a word of truth in these rumors. I do not believe in the existence of what you fear, although I do not deny that persons best entitled to the fullest credit have already conversed with me on the subject. In my heart and soul, I think it utterly impossible that the king could be guilty of such an outrage on a gentleman. I will answer for the king, therefore, and will soon bring you back the proof of what I say. Raoul, wavering like a drunken man between what he had seen with his own eyes and the imperturbable faith he had in a man who had never told a falsehood, bowed and simply answered, "'Go then, Monsieur le Comte. I will await your return.' And he sat down, burying his face in his hands. Athos dressed and then left him in order to wait upon the king. The result of that interview is already known to our readers." When he returned to his lodgings, Raoul, pale and dejected, had not quitted his attitude of despair. At the sound, however, of the opening doors and of his father's footsteps as he approached him, the young man raised his head. Athos's face was very pale, his head uncovered and his manner full of seriousness. He gave his cloak and hat to the lackey, dismissed him with a gesture, and sat down near Raoul. "'Well, monsieur,' inquired the young man, are you convinced yet? I am Raoul. The king loves Mademoiselle de la Valliere. He confesses it then? cried Raoul. Yes, replied Athos. And she? I have not seen her. No, but the king spoke to you about her. What did he say? He says that she loves him. Oh! "'You see, you see, monsieur,' said the young man, with a gesture of despair. "'Raoul,' resumed the comte, "'I told the king, believe me, all that you yourself could possibly have urged, and I believe I did so in becoming language, though sufficiently firm.' "'And what did you say to him, monsieur?' "'I told him, Raoul, that everything was now at an end between him and ourselves.' that you would never serve him again. I told him that I, too, should remain aloof. Nothing further remains for me, then, but to be satisfied of one thing. What is that, monsieur? Whether you have determined to adopt any steps. Any steps? Regarding what? With reference to your disappointed affection and your ideas of vengeance. Oh! Monsieur, with regard to my affection, I shall perhaps some day or other succeed in tearing it from my heart. I trust I shall do so, aided by heaven's merciful help and your own wise exhortations. As far as vengeance is concerned, it occurred to me only when under the influence of an evil thought. For I could not revenge myself upon the one who is actually guilty. I have therefore already renounced every idea of revenge." And you no longer think of seeking a quarrel with Monsieur de Saint-Aignan? No, monsieur. I sent him a challenge. If Monsieur de Saint-Aignan accepts it, I will maintain it. If he does not take it up, I will leave things as they are. 
and la valliere you cannot i know have seriously thought that i should dream of revenging myself upon a woman replied raoul with a smile so sad that a tear started even to the eyes of his father who had so many times in the course of his life bowed beneath his own sorrows and those of others he held out his hand to raoul which the latter seized most eagerly and so monsieur le comte are you quite satisfied that the misfortune is one beyond all remedy inquired the young man poor boy he murmured you think that i still live in hope said raoul and you pity me oh it is indeed horrible suffering for me to despise as i am bound to do the one i have loved so devotedly if i had but some real cause of complaint against her i should be happy but i should be able to forgive her athos looked at his son with a profoundly sorrowful air for the words raoul had just pronounced seemed to have issued out of his own heart at this moment the servant announced monsieur d'artagnan this name sounded very differently to the ears of athos and raoul the musketeer entered the room with a vague smile on his lips raoul paused athos walked toward his friend with an expression of face that did not escape bragelonne d'artagnan answered athos look by an imperceptible movement of the eyelid and then advancing toward raoul whom he took by the hand he said addressing both father and son well you are trying to console this poor boy it seems and you kind and good as usual have come to help me in my difficult task as he said this athos pressed d'artagnan's hand between both his own raoul fancied he observed in this pressure something beyond the sense his mere words conveyed yes replied the musketeer smoothing his mustache with the hand that athos had left free yes i have come too you are most welcome chevalier not for the consolation you bring with you but on your own account i am already consoled said raoul and he attempted to smile but the effort was more sad than any tears d'artagnan had ever seen shed that is all well and good then said d'artagnan only continued raoul you have arrived just as the comte was about to give me the details of his interview with the king you will allow the comte to continue added the young man as with his eyes fixed on the musketeer he seemed to read the very depths of his heart his interview with the king said d'artagnan in a tone so natural and unassumed that there was no means of suspecting that his astonishment was feigned you have seen the king then athos athos smiled as he said yes i have seen him ah indeed you were unaware then that the comte had seen his majesty inquired raoul half reassured yes indeed quite so in that case i am less uneasy said raoul uneasy and about what inquired athos forgive me monsieur said raoul but knowing so well the regard and affection you have for me i was afraid you might possibly have expressed somewhat plainly to his majesty my own sufferings and your indignation and that the king had consequently and that the king had consequently repeated d'artagnan well go on finish what you were going to say i have 
now to ask you to forgive me monsieur d'artagnan said raoul for a moment I, and i can't help confessing it i trembled lest you had come here not as monsieur d'artagnan but as captain of the musketeers you are mad my poor boy cried d'artagnan with a burst of laughter in which an exact observer might perhaps have wished to have heard a little more frankness so much the better said raoul yes mad and do you know what i would advise you to do tell me monsieur for the advice is sure to be good as it comes from you very good then i advise you after your long journey from england after your visit to monsieur de guiche after your visit to madame after your visit to porthos after your journey to vincennes i advise you i say to take a few hours rest go and lie down sleep for a dozen hours and when you wake up go and ride one of my horses until you have tired him to death and drawing raoul towards him he embraced him as he would have done his own child athos did the like only it was very visible that the kiss was still more affectionate and the pressure of his lips even warmer with the father than with the friend the young man again looked at both his companions endeavoring to penetrate their real meaning or their real feelings with the utmost strength of his intelligence but his look was powerless upon the smiling countenance of the musketeer or upon the calm and composed features of the comte de la fere where are you going raoul inquired the latter seeing that bragelonne was preparing to go out to my own apartments replied the latter in his soft sad voice we shall be sure to find you there then if we should have anything to say to you yes monsieur but do you suppose it likely you will have something to say to me how can i tell said athos yes something fresh to console you with said d'artagnan pushing him toward the door raoul observing the perfect composure which marked every gesture of his two friends quitted the comte's room carrying away with him nothing but the individual feeling of his own particular distress thank heaven he said since that is the case i need only think of myself and wrapping himself up in his cloak in order to conceal from the passer-by in the street his gloomy and sorrowful face he quitted them for the purpose of returning to his own rooms as he had promised porthos the two friends watched the young man as he walked away with a feeling of genuine disinterested pity only each expressed it in a different way poor raoul said athos sighing deeply poor raoul said d'artagnan shrugging his shoulders End of chapter twenty recording by john van stan savannah georgia